You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Friends, colleagues, our distinguished guests, Michael and Susanna, uh, you're all very welcome to Trinity's Edmund Burke Theatre for the Edmund Burke uh, Lecture. My name's Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is Trinity's research institute for the arts and humanities. Uh, and as many of you know, part of our mission in the Trinity Longroom Hub is to position the arts and humanities as a voice in world affairs. And the Burke Lecture has become a mainstay of that incentive. Uh, previous speakers have included Mary McAleese, Roy Foster, Margaret Macmillan, and Robert Fisk, to name just some of them. And the lectures have provided uh, an important context in which to reflect on the challenges and the contradictions of our era, following the example of Edmund Burke's reflections on the challenges and contradictions of his own time. We're returning, I'm pleased to say, in person this evening after a two-year suspension of the lecture because of the pandemic. It just didn't feel right to try to do the Edmund Burke lecture on Zoom. Uh, but I think also being in person holds true to the, the, the spirit of real-life discussion and, and close-up engagement that has characterized this series since it began in 2014. Uh, and before we start, I would like to acknowledge the Fallon family, uh, many of whom are joining us this evening for their support for this series since it started in honor of Trinity alumnus Porrick Fallon. And thank you, and you're all very welcome. Our guest speaker this evening, Professor Michael Ignatieff, is well known to you in various different guises. Historian, politician, broadcaster, advocate for civil and academic liberties, novelist. As a university academic, he has served as the Murrow Chair of Press, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and more recently, as you will know, as President and Rector of the Central European University, where he now lectures in the Department of History. Uh, and I know that many people here this evening have close connections with the CEU and share our deep regret at the university's expulsion from its home in Budapest. In his many books, he has addressed the post-revolutionary conditions of Central and Eastern Europe, interrogated the tensions between civic democracy and ethnic nationalism in India, in Quebec, in Northern Ireland, asked if the ordinary virtues of human existence can sustain a political existence, and considered most recently the terms on which we draw consolation from the biblical and classical literature of the past. Michael Ignatieff returns to Dublin this evening with what I think is the right topic at the right moment. Uh, as we begin to close the decade of centenaries uh, that's given us all an opportunity to reflect on the often violent inaugurations of the modern Irish state a hundred years ago, and as we witness numerous violent inaugurations across the contemporary world. 
What does it mean for a nation to come to terms with its past? This is what Michael has asked by way of James Joyce in his 1998 book, The Warrior's Honor. And I think that question will no doubt shape uh, his talk this evening and also prompt, I hope, many questions from this audience, which we'll come to afterwards. So now, please join me in welcoming Michael Ignatieff to Trinity to give the 2022 Edmund Burke Lecture on Democracy and the Legacy of Revolutionary Violence. It's uh, wonderful to be back in Dublin. Um, I think I've been here three times, but I have such a good time, I kind of confuse them all together. So I think it's three times we've been here. Um, and it's uh, a pleasure to be back in this hall. I, I seem to think I gave a lecture here in 2004, the Amnesty Lecture. And what I remember from that is I had a very, very hard time indeed from Irish audience. So I'm looking forward to a hard time tonight. Um, I want to thank Eve particularly for this invitation and her whole team. Um, it's a wonderful institution she runs. I've spent the day there. Um, I also met the Fallon clan. It's not just a family, it's a clan. And I do want to thank them from this podium for making the whole thing possible. And I want to thank all of you for coming. Um, You'll be relieved to know that uh, my wife Susanna is here, and that means you have quality control in the house. Um, if I rabbit on too much, she has a patented gesture which goes like this. <laughs> so if you see that happening, I will just simply stop. There we go. Um, okay, my, my subject is democracy and the legacy of revolutionary violence. Many democracies trace their origins back to moments of revolutionary upheaval. The United Kingdom's modern, modern history of constitutional monarchy began with the revolution of 1688, when Parliament deposed James II and put William and Mary on the throne. The American Republic, I hardly need remind you, began with an armed uprising against the British Empire in 1776. And because I'm a Canadian, I need to also remind you that it was followed by a brutal internal civil war that ended with loyalist Americans stripped of their property and sent into exile in Canada. Um, France began its democratic history with the storming of the Bastille, followed by revolutionary terror, a war that exported revolution across Europe, and ended with the autocracy of Napoleon. Irish democracy traces its beginnings back to the insurrection of the United Irishmen in the 1790s, the Easter Rising of 1916, the War of Independence that ended with the creation of the Irish Free State in 1922. And to this day, Ireland's national anthem, the Soldier's Song, commemorates this um, tradition. And in Africa and Asia, likewise, uh, revolutionary anti-colonialist uprisings gave birth to democracy in many countries, India, Indonesia, Kenya, Ghana, and many other states in Africa and Asia. But once founded in a moment of revolutionary upheaval, democracies must manage their legacy to ensure that revolutionary violence 
sanctioned as a sacred necessity at the beginning, does not legitimize violence when democracy faces a crisis or deadlock or extreme polarization. And this problem is basic to the theory of democracy itself. If revolution's very purpose is to anchor the sovereignty of the people at the base of a democratic constitution, how then to prevent the people from taking up arms to defend it when they believe it's in danger? How to prevent the democratic principle from becoming an enemy to the institutions that democracy uses to stabilize the exercise of power in the people's name. The Irish nationalist tradition has faced this problem from the beginning. While most nationalists in Ireland have always promoted exclusively peaceful means towards the goal of United Ireland, there's always been more radical strands prepared to defend, support, or actively fund insurrectionary or terrorist methods to achieve the goal of a united Ireland. And which side you take, what you believe the Irish revolutionary tradition authorizes you to do in the here and now, has divided Irish politics since independence. In the United States, the debate about what a revolutionary tradition meant began with the founding moments of the Republic. Thomas Jefferson did say in 1787 that he hoped for an uprising every 20 years to prevent democratic freedom from being strangled by corrupt elites. His friend James Madison, on the other hand, hoped for precisely the opposite. In the Federalist Papers, he argued for a new constitution that would balance the majoritarian principle with counter-majoritarian checks to ensure that popular sovereignty would never pose a threat to the stability of free institutions. Yet the insurrectionary traditions in American beginnings have had a stubborn and sturdy afterlife right up to the present day. There are two ways to interpret what happened at the US Capitol on January the 6th, 2021. Either you believe that a wild and reactionary mob egged on by a populist demagogue sacked the seat of American democracy, or you maintain that an assembly of righteous patriots inspired by Sam Adams and Tom Paine rallied to defend the Constitution against an attempt to, by a corrupt elite to certify a stolen election. If you're a Democrat, you tend to believe the first story. If you're a Republican, you may well believe the second. But if you do, you're in effect appealing to the American revolutionary tradition and calling on it to justify what happened that day. Now, we all know how it turned out. The siege failed. The election was certified by a Republican vice president. America's institutional guardrails held fast, at least for that moment. And those responsible for the siege are facing uh, justice. So far, so good. Except that some elected officials, including a former president, who had taken an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, 
continue to argue that the election was stolen, and in so doing, continue to legitimize the use of extra legal means, in their words, to defend democracy. Now this awakens certain echoes. <clears throat> As the saga of Weimar Germany in 1932-3 should teach us, it was not violence that did democracy in, because remember, Hitler came to power peacefully. He was handed the chancellorship by the president. What did democracy in was the duly elected conservative representatives of the Reichstag and party leaders failed to condemn Nazi street violence and intimidation and refused to quarantine or have nothing to do with Nazi representatives in the Reichstag. In other words, it's when the corruption of democracy enters into the institutions themselves that you should be frightened because nonviolence is the existential rule of democracy. And when elected officials fail to defend the nonviolence rule, democracy's days may be numbered. Now, democracies have often been forced to defend repressive means to sustain constitutional order against popular insurrections. And so they've used suspension of habeas corpus, they've had the preventive detention of suspects, they've had the forcible dispersal of disorderly crowds, but democracies are bound by their very constitutions to reestablish public liberty as soon as any insurrectionary challenge has been surmounted. Authoritarian regimes, of course, are under no such obligation. But this is the interesting thing. They too may have revolutionary origins. Think Russia, 1917. Think China. 1949. Each, as you know, solved the problem of revolutionary legacies in their own distinctive and unique way. Lenin and Mao put in place successor regimes that exercised a total monopoly on the levers of political violence, and when this was challenged within their parties, these dictators, and they followed Hitler in this, did not hesitate to unleash counter-revolutionary violence. Hitler used it in the Night of the Long Knives of 1934, Stalin used it in the Purges of 1937-8, and Mao used it in the Cultural Revolution of 1964-72. And the point, I, I mention this because those who survived those purges resolved to suppress all revolutionary tendencies within and beyond the party itself. And the reason that this is relevant is that the current leader of China, Xi Jinping, was one of the party princelings who was sent into rural exile by Mao. And judging from the way that he's ruled ever since, exile seems to have taught him that all experiences of popular power, all insurrectionary impulses, whether from the bottom or from the, from the bottom or from the top down, are to be ruthlessly suppressed. The same story could in fact be told about Russia. Vladimir Putin may have dissociated himself from the Bolshevik tradition because he blames the Bolsheviks for handing Ukrainians their statehood in 1922, but he remains a Bolshevik, utterly a Bolshevik, in his exercise of power. Indeed, 
one could think of contemporary Russian and Chinese politics, one could in fact understand the authoritarian challenge we we're facing as based on a comprehensive and consistent attempt throughout the 20th and 21st century to liquidate the challenge to single party rule posed by the revolutionary traditions that brought these parties to power. So it's an interesting way, I think, to think about China and Russia at the present time. Now, democracies, of course, can't solve their revolutionary problem this way. Once a society allows liberty in any form, it must try to channel insurrectionary impulses into institutional channels. French history, if you'll allow this brief excursion, offers a particularly relevant example of the instability that recurs when democracies fail to domesticate their revolutionary traditions. The absolute monarchy restored in 1815 after Waterloo was overthrown in 1830. The constitutional monarch, Louis-Philippe, who was put on the throne in 1830, was overthrown by a Parisian uprising in 1848. The republic created in 1848 was replaced by Napoleon III in 1851. In 1870, Napoleon was tipped over after the defeat of Sedan, inaugurating after the Paris Commune, the Third Republic. It in turn succumbed in 1940 to military defeat, and then the post-war history of instability continues with the collapse of the Fourth Republic, de Gaulle's peaceful coup, and the reestablishment of the what could be called the monarchical republic of the Fifth Republic. Um, so revolutionary and insurrectionary traditions are not the only reason for this story. But these traditions do continue to legitimize popular challenges to democratic stability and elite rule in France. When um, President Macron joins in the singing of the Marseillaise with its famous lines, Aux armes citoyens, formez vos bataillons. I can sing the whole thing if you want, but <laughs> the night is, you know, it's, it's wonderful, the Marseillaise. But notice what it's actually saying. Aux armes, citoyens, formez vos bataillons. He, like all French presidents, Mr. Macron has to pray that his fellow citizens, especially those wearing gilets jaunes, don't take the words literally. <laughs> Throughout the 19th century, conservative writers like de Mestre, de Bonald, and Gobineau, as well as conservative statesmen like Metternich and Talleyrand, believed that the only solution to the problem of revolutionary traditions was to suppress them utterly. These were counter-revolutionaries who believed that indoctrination in the values of God, throne, and altar was the only way to return Europe to order. So these conservatives take a frankly counter-revolutionary position, trying to turn the clock back as if revolution never happened. But the liberals of the 19th century Benjamin Constant, Alexis de Tocqueville, John Stuart Mill, took an anti-revolutionary stance, not seeking to pretend that you could turn back time as if the revolution never happened, but seeking instead to channel the aspirations for liberty, equality, and fraternity that the revolution had created, trans move those into a reform process that would enfranchise the respectable working class and put an end to the revolutionary challenge. 
Um, what I'm about to say may irritate the good old liberals in the audience of whom I am one. I think as a result of this story that you need to think of being a liberal uh, in a particular way. Modern liberalism has remained an anti-revolutionary politics ever since. For the liberal tradition, the essential task of a democratic politics is to channel the unruly popular will into an institutional process of incremental reform. Some of you will know about the wonderful Harvard teacher Judith Sklar, and Judith Sklar coined the term the liberalism of fear. What is it that you fear if you're a liberal? One of the things you fear if you're a liberal is revolution. Fear of what can ensue if democracy allows its revolutionary beginnings to tempt its citizens to resort to the bullet rather than the ballot box. And managing these revolutionary heritages has remained a central problem of politics throughout the 20th century. Communism and fascism need to be understood as revolutionary moments, movements. They sought to realize the core dream at the heart of all revolutionary movements, that is to redeem a corrupt and fallen society, to empower the powerless, and to rid society of its enemies, both foreign and domestic. But once fascism and communism had been definitively defeated in 1945 and then in 1999, an anti-revolutionary liberalism seemed to be the only unsullied path left open for Western democracy. In, in the words of Francis Fukuyama, liberalism's triumph represented the end of history, the definitive solution to the vital problem of how to reconcile popular sovereignty with liberty and order. And now, having lived through January 6, 2021, we're reminded once again that history, of course, never ends, and we've returned to a problem that the great thinkers of the 18th century regarded as a central issue of politics. And that brings me finally to Edmund Burke. No 18th century thinker gave more careful thought to the question of how a free society manages a revolutionary heritage. And no one thought more carefully about the instability introduced into society once popular sovereignty becomes the operative principle of political legitimacy. Now Burke, as you know, is frequently lumped with the conservative counter-revolutionaries, with de Mestre, de Bonal, and Gobineau. But that forgets that he was a reforming Whig who spent his entire political life in opposition to the Tory ascendancy. As a Whig, he claimed proud descent from the revolution of 1688. He supported the creation of an Irish parliament and Catholic emancipation to solve the perennial imperial problem of governing Ireland. He denounced the East India Company for tarnishing British principles of rule of law and fair play and he lent support in Parliament to the American revolutionaries. He can't be lumped with a conservative counter-revolutionaries, for he was quite clear that there were circumstances, a moment beyond law and right, when a responsible politician faced with intolerable abuse, chaos, or misgovernment must support revolution, must support the forcible overthrow of a regime. It's worth hearing what Burke said on this subject. And I quote, the speculative line of demarcation where obedience ought to end and resistance begin 
is faint, obscure, and not easily definable. It is not a single act or a single event which determines it. Governments must be abused and deranged indeed before it can be thought of, and the prospect of the future must be as bad as the experience of the past. Times and occasions and provocations will teach their own lessons, but with or without right, a revolution will be the very last resort of the thinking and the good. The American Revolution to Burke was just such a last resort. The British government's failure to understand American grievances and its violation of the colonists' liberties left independence by force of arms the only possible outcome. As Raymond Burke argues in Empire and Revolution, Burke understood the American Revolution not as a revolution, but as a restoration, as a just struggle to reclaim the rights of freeborn Englishmen endangered by an imperial administration's blind folly. And in supporting the Americans, Burke was adopting the same argument the British patriots of 1688 had used to justify the glorious revolution. For Burke and for the generation of 1688, revolution was not a voyage out into the open sea, but a return to a safe harbor, a restoration of endangered liberties. This reading, of course, was not at all how the radical Whigs and dissenters a century later understood 1688. When the French Revolution dawned in 1789, dissenters like Richard Price and the Constitution Society in England claimed that the, the French were merely seeking what the British had already achieved a century earlier. In Price's words, first, the right to liberty of conscience in religious matters, secondly, the right to resist power when abused, and thirdly, the right to choose our own governors, to cashier them for misconduct, and frame a government for ourselves. This is Burke's target in Reflections on the Revolution in France. The Reflections, as you know, are a root and branch attack on this radical reading of Britain's revolutionary traditions. Far from establishing popular sovereignty, 1680, 1688 merely restored ancient liberties. The radicals of 1790, Burke tartly insisted, had confused 1688 with 1649 when an English revolution had deposed and executed Charles I. 1688 reestablished hereditary monarchy and parliamentary authority, and the entire stability of the British constitutional tradition depended on shared understanding of this fact. And as for the French Revolution, Burke maintained it was not a restoration, but a coup to bring down a king. A reforming monarchy had reached out to the populace to convene an estates general to resolve the perennial problem of financing the French state. And this was the trigger that set the fatal uh, declension underway. And far from a majestic popular uprising to demand liberty, equality, and fraternity from a despotic state, the French Revolution, Burke insisted, was nothing more than a cabal of spoiled Parisian intellectuals and discontented French aristocrats backed by the Parisian mob, seizing on the summoning of the estates general to grab power for their own sakes. Revolution, Burke conceded, might have been necessary if reform had become impossible. 
But reform, led by the crown, was underway. And it was revolution that swept this path away. And so revolution was, in Burke's words, quote, an unforced choice, a fond, that is to say, crazy, election of evil, unquote. The result, he predicted, would be violence, chaos, and economic calamity. For Burke, the problem with revolution was not just the tendency of popular sovereignty to legitimate violence against the enemies of the people, but something much deeper, the very idea that political authority could, could be founded on rational consent and withdrawn at pleasure. Submission to authority, he argued, is never a strictly rational, consensual matter. You submit to what you can be persuaded to love, to fear, or to respect. And this process of persuasion begins when we are children and is con continues with our socialization into our families, schools, communities, and institutions. Through a gradual socialization in obedience, we come to take it for granted that we will respect both elected and ceremonial authorities. And we know what we get in return, which is stability, order, and continuity, but Burke insisted that this is not a contract calculated on the basis of self-interest, but rather the result of what I think we could call the cultural construction of affection and emotion. As the recent funeral of Elizabeth II brings home, even to convinced Republicans, when authority has this symbolic legitimacy, we see ourselves reflected in its symbols and rituals. We are approving the best versions of ourselves, and when royal families mourn, we mourn our own losses. And these symbolic exchanges between citizens and their highest authorities are constitutive of such consent as we ever give. On the other hand, in societies where constituted authority gives us very little of what we need, little order, less justice, not much continuity, and very little pride or recognition, our obedience may cease to be a matter of affection or respect and may come to rest on little more than the fear that things could get still worse and that revolutionary change offers us little hope of better. In a famous passage of Reflections, lamenting the Paris mob storming into the bedroom of the queen in October 1789, Burke exclaimed that the mob's actions were not just a violation of the bonds of obedience, they were a kind of sexual and religious profanation. And he, it, he then, this led him to make one of his absolutely fantastic passage, which many of you will know. It goes on and on. I'll just read a bit of it. Never, never more shall we behold that generous loyalty to rank and sex, that proud submission, that dignified obedience, that subordination of the heart which kept alive, even in servitude itself, the spirit of an exalted freedom. Just pause on what those words are doing here, because Burke is a master of the language, and they are very hard to hold together, because they're antinomies, proud submission, dignified obedience, subordination as exalted freedom. These paradoxical phrases are the crux 
of Burke's vision of how rulers secure the obedience of the ruled by incarnating the values and dreams of their subjects. In this process of deep emotional identification, rulers secure the submission of their subjects without degrading their pride. To suppose, Burke went on, that political order could be maintained by consent alone, as the English radicals and French revolutionaries supposed, was to make the error of believing, he said, that the state was, quote, nothing better than a partnership agreement in a trade of pepper and coffee, calico or tobacco. On the contrary, you know all these phrases, I'm just repeating things that many of you will know by heart. On the contrary, it was a, quote, partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. Monarchy preserved this partnership with the dead and the unborn. A republic dissolved it. The living had no right, in his view, to dissolve a political order simply because they were dis discontented. They had an obligation to consider both what their ancestors would have said, but also what their children and grandchildren would want them to do. And together, this sense of politics as a partnership across time, across generations, should at the very least make revolution in the here and now an ultimate, desperate, and reluctantly chosen last resort. The genius at work in the reflections consists in Burke's awareness that the French Revolution represented the dawn of a new age of sophisters, economists, and calculators, and of a new calculus of obedience based in what they, be they believed was rational consent. While furiously and desperately warning that such a calculus would drain the sacred springs of proud obedience. Burke's response to the rise of the United Irishmen in the 1790s and Wolf Tone's insurrection with French help in 1796 followed consistently from this position. Since the 1780s, as an Irish Whig, he'd preached the necessity of Catholic emancipation and the creation of an Irish parliament as ways to reconcile the Irish to imperial rule. And as he wrote in a letter in 1792, Catholic exclusion threatened the Constitution itself. Our Constitution, he wrote, is not made for great general proscriptive exclusions. Sooner or later, it will destroy them, or they will destroy the Constitution. When Pitt and the Tories ignored Burke's warnings and Wolfe Tone and the United Irishmen launched their ill-fated uprising, Burke confessed in a, in a, in a moment of supreme despair because he was also mourning the premature death of his son, that he was now no more than old oak struck down by the storm, lying broken in the fields. And he died a year later, believing his life's work in defending conciliation and reform in the face of revolutionary threats lay in ruins. Catholic counter-revolutionaries of the 19th century, the ones I've talked about, particularly Joseph de Mastre, carried on Burke's polemic against popular sovereignty. But they argued, as Burke never did, that if authority was not based on consent, and if faith had lost its holds on power's subjects, power and authority would have to be maintained by the hangman. 
one of those chilling passages in 19th century political theory is Demest's amazing praise for the hangman. That's how we're going to keep this show on the road, he said, the hangman. And it's semi-pornographic in its lustful endorsement of sheer raw violence as the basis of uh, modern political order. The 19th century liberals, Tocqueville, Mill, and Constant, took a very different position. They accepted, as the Catholic counter-revolutionaries could not, that modern political authority had lost with the French Revolution and lost it forever, its sacred anchorage in the alliance between throne and altar. This was a legacy of revolution that could not be undone. Liberals understood that the hangman celebrated in Demest's terrifyingly enthusiastic encomium as the only remaining support for counter-revolutionary order could not hope to prevail against the aspirations unleashed by the French Revolution. What liberals understood from, from 1815 onwards is the future of political legitimacy would be democratic and could not be theocratic or authoritarian. But they believed that consent could indeed reconcile popular sovereignty with political order. And this was Tocqueville's discovery from his visits to America in, in the 1830s, that a vast country could be held together by a secular religion of shared democratic consent, and that a revolutionary beginning did not menace the stability of the political system it called into being, and most surprising of all, that a society ordered by a purely secular principle of consent could also be religious. Religion was everywhere in America, Tocqueville discovered, but it was a private matter, separated by a constitutional wall from affairs of state. Much else besides the sturdy survival of religion in a supposedly secular age would have surprised Burke if he had lived to see what the age of the sophisters, economists, and calculators had brought into being. The recent funerals, not just of queens, but also of presidents, teach us that even in an age of secular consent, tradition, ritual, sentiment, and feeling still play a decisive role in bonding together rulers and ruled, and where these are absent, the stability of political rule may be fragile indeed. As I come to a conclusion, believe I am about to wind up here, uh, the larger question that a rereading of Burke leaves with me at least, is whether we are once again, as Burke was in his lifetime, in an age of revolution. Certainly we're in an age of revolutionary change, Bill Emmett and others in this room have cataloged just how revolutionary the changes have been. The geostrategic balance is being overthrown by the rise of China, the aggressive revanchism of Russia. New technologies of the digital era have upended our politics. Climate change has upended our energy economy and may upend life on the planet. And most of all, the creative and not so creative destruction of capitalism is spreading constant disruption through the global economy and the labor markets on which we all depend. And new inequalities, not just of income or capital, but of race, gender, creed, country versus city, are putting enormous pressure on democratic and authoritarian systems of government alike. Now, a period of revolutionary change is not always necessarily a prelude 
to a political revolution. When change benefits most people, and when governments compensate those who lose, change need not lead to revolution. But this time, at least since 2008, we appear to be edging, backing our way into slouching, to use the Yatesian phrase, slouching towards a moment where revolution might, might, I don't see well, might suddenly be on the cards again. On the left and the right of the political spectrum, there are populist appeals to overthrow the largely liberal, cosmopolitan, well-educated elites. Right-wing populism, which you can see at work in Spain, Netherlands, Italy, Sweden, Denmark, Poland, Hungary, and Brazil, are campaigning against the cosmopolitan elites for imposing a multicultural liberal model of society that threatens the national identity and cohesion of majority communities who feel or can be persuaded to feel under attack. On the left, left-wing populism in the United Kingdom, the US, Brazil, Peru, and Argentina maintains that neoliberal elites have sacrificed the poor and the marginal to the greed of global capitalism. And whether from the left or the right, populist movements are moving from the edges of the political spectrum into power. And the question is whether they continue to play by the constitutional rules or overturn them to consolidate authoritarian rule. Now I've argued elsewhere, which is my way of saying that I've written another paper on this subject, which you must all read. Uh, <laughs> As I've argued elsewhere, in thinking about populism, whether of left or right, we should, be, we should be very wary of adopting the anxious viewpoint of embattled liberal elites. And if we are liberal elites, and I'm a proud member, we better take our helmets off and see the world as others see it pretty quickly. <clears throat> populist, and we need to understand what the history tells us, is that populist challenges from below have a long history in our democracy, and they have been and can be a tremendously important source of renewal, particularly when elites get out of touch. They were a source of renewal in the progressive era in the United States before the First World War, for example. Populism becomes dangerous first if it gains office, as in Hungary, and then uses the democratic mandates <clears throat> to undermine <clears throat> the counter-majoritarian institutions, courts, media, free universities, that help to keep citizens free. That's danger number one. But danger number two, equally, is <clears throat> if populists fail to gain power at the ballot box, as Trump failed to do in 2020, and then adopts unconstitutional or violent means, first to discredit democratic institutions, and then to take power. It's simply too early to tell whether the populist challenge to liberal elites will merely test the democratic system or bring about its downfall. It all depends on whether liberal elites maintain control of the forces of revolutionary change or whether they lose their nerve and whether democratic electorates, i.e. you, succumb to the populist siren song. One lesson from the previous revolutionary ages, surely, and it's the most disturbing one, is that you never know in advance when a situation has reached a revolutionary moment. 
You only know when the moment is upon you. Edmund Burke has another lesson to teach us finally, which I want to dwell on. Burke's analysis of the French Revolution insisted that it was not what later romantic historians like Michelet and revolutionary theorists like Marx and Engels believed it was, namely a vast, ineluctable swelling of the ocean of history, an inevitable historical necessity sweeping the Ancien Regime away. Burke thought, no, it's not that at all. There's no historical fatality of the French Revolution at all. It's a political event created by human beings with political agency who failed to meet the moment and failed to understand what was happening. So that if enough people, the message I think, is that if enough people continue to believe in the democratic process, and if leaders display the requisite prudence, there is no fatality, no inevitability, no ineluctable fate that condemns Irish democracy, British democracy, American democracy to failure. Burke's very fulminations against the leaders of the French Revolution restores their responsibility for the catastrophe that ensured. And in doing so, he reminds us that we, the people, make revolutions. They do not make us. A further lesson from any serious reflection on revolutionary legacies and the history of democracies is surely to disabuse us of any nostalgia, euphoria, sentimentality, or anticipation about revolutionary moments. Yes, revolutions have given us the democracies we cherish, but their birth was always bloody. Revolutions then and now may also be unavoidable, even necessary, a last resort, as Burke said, when all else fails, especially when democratic leadership fails to respond to the challenges of change. But no one who takes Burke or Tocqueville and listens to what they've, they wrote so long ago about revolutions past will greet revolutions to come with anything but deep concern especially for the way in which democratic principles themselves, whether advanced by left or right, are so often used to justify violence, cruelty, and even the destruction of democracy itself. Thank you.